0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I've been thinking about this question for a little while now. What does it mean to fight hate? There's been an undeniable spike in hate in the U.S. since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Incident after incident where Jewish and Muslim people have been attacked for their association with, their opinions about, a conflict thousands of miles away. And there's been a cry to do something about it.
2: But we've documented hundreds of anti-Semitic incidents on campuses. We've seen residence halls plastered with hateful messages. We've seen Jewish students removed from student government because of their, quote, Zionism. And the list goes on.
1: The Anti-Defamation League is one group that's been tracking hate speech. They even have an online heat map where you can look up reports one by one. This is their CEO testifying in Congress back in November.
2: This isn't a question of free speech. Don't let anyone tell you that. Freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. Period. Full stop.
1: It's interesting to listen back to this testimony, just to consider how this organization thinks about what hate is and how to push back on it. The head of the ADL says he categorizes some student protests against the war as calls for a final solution. And to conclude, he recommends the FBI and the IRS investigate the groups behind these demonstrations. In the days since this testimony, the Anti-Defamation League has been rocked by these statements, and others like them. Statements that seem to equate defending Jewish people with defending the state of Israel. It's left some inside the ADL wondering, is this organization really fighting hate? Or are we doing something else here?
0: Previously, there might have been certain ADL employees who in their work could choose to focus on other things or just didn't really have to completely engage with the questions of anti-Zionism. And now that basically became impossible after October 7th as the organization was so wholly focused on that.
1: Mari Cohen reports for Jewish Currents. According to her reporting, the ADL's completely reoriented its work in the wake of the war on Gaza. Four staffers have resigned from the organization over the last few weeks, at least partially in protest over its commitment to the state of Israel. You know, on its website, the Anti-Defamation League calls itself the leading anti-hate organization in the world. Is that
0: how you see them? Mm. I don't know, is that how I see them? I think no, I don't really see the ADL that way now. I see that they are seen that way uh, in much of the world. They are presenting themselves as this voice that is um, here to fight all forms of hate, forms of bias, but if that comes into conflict with the pro-Israel advocacy, the ADL will choose the pro-Israel advocacy. Despite, you know, kind of calling themselves this broader anti-hate organization, that usually does not um, eclipse their focus on supporting Israel.
1: Today on the show, has October 7th brought the Anti-Defamation League to a turning point? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Choppacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: I think it's important to look at the history of the Anti-Defamation League just to explain where this organization is now. So I wonder if we can do that, if you can just start by telling me the story of how this organization got its start and what its goals were initially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the ADL was founded um, in 1913. Um, It was founded actually in response to the lynching of Leo Frank, who was like a Jewish factory owner who was most likely wrongfully convicted of the um, murder of a, a young White woman in the factory, and it kind of raised all these questions about, um, you know, anti-Semitism in the U.S. and in the South. And ADL believed that there needed to be an organization that was kind of like fighting manifestations of anti-Semitism in American life. Um, and it was actually founded by um, the B'nai B'rith, which is a was a German Jewish organization in the U.S.
1: Were these upper class Jews or middle class Jews?
0: Yeah, like upper class. So these the German Jewish immigrants had been in the country um, for several decades at this point. Most of them had come during the 19th century. They were upper class. And they often had slightly more kind of suspicious attitudes towards the newer Eastern European immigrants who were much lo- uh, lower class, working class, who were starting to come in droves in the early 20th century.
1: Hmm. You're really laying out how respectability politics was kind of baked into this organization from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'll just add also these German Jewish elites who were running these organizations were actually very suspicious of Zionism early on um, because they saw Zionism as something that would um, like as this nationalist idea that would challenge the connection of Jews to the U.S. and um, Jews' ability to assimilate.
1: You've said that the organization's power comes from the fact that the Anti-Defamation League can basically have a meeting with anyone it wants. It's like really respected. How did it become so prominent?
0: So Abe Foxman was the head of the ADL from 1987 to um, 2015.
1: That's a long run
0: long run. He was the predecessor to Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the current CEO. And he was just like a very pugnacious, very present, very intense individual who was sort of known for just like really loudly um, calling people out as anti-Semitic. And, you know, and sometimes that did lead to backlash and kind of get him in trouble because people were like, are you just throwing this label around everywhere? And, you know, in the post 9-11 period, you know, this often kind of, in my opinion, trended into him really kind of adopting a lot of Islamophobic ideas and often seeming to target the Muslim community. But in general, he was just this pretty, like, visible figure, and that probably did help contribute to some of the ADL's prominence.
1: The ADL's journey to supporting Israel, the way it does today, started with the Holocaust. The genocide of Jews in Europe prompted many American Jews to start supporting the creation of a Jewish state for the sake of security. A post-World War II wave of American anti-Semitism also generated support for Zionism.
0: There was also this major refugee crisis that you know happened during and after the Holocaust, um, when there's all these. Jews who suddenly need a place to go in the U.S. was um, not taking refugees. It had these pretty strict immigration restrictions. And so a lot of, I think, Jews started to be like, oh, there's this refugee crisis. We don't know where these people are going to go. So we have to support Israel as a place for them to be able to live.
1: But Mari says Israel was not a top line priority over at the ADL. Until leftist American organizations of the late 60s and 70s started organizing with Palestinian liberation organizations
0: and a lot of the Jewish mainstream Jewish organizations found this very threatening because they thought it meant that Jews were no longer like included in that left coalition hmm. and so especially in the 70s um, the leader of the ADL at the time wrote this book called the new anti-Semitism and it was basically just like positing that there was actually this new version of anti-semitism which Jews weren't recognized as um, you know oppressed, People on the left, and that this new anti Semitism meant targeting Israel, and that that was a way of targeting Jews. And so that was kind of a big moment in which the ADL was like, actually, we're focusing on this new anti Semitism that comes more from the left and that um, involves being anti sionist
1: As this change happened, how did the Anti Defamation League's relationship with Muslim or Arab organizations evolve? Like, was it friendly or not?
0: Yeah, there's definitely been a history of, um, I think, unfriendliness. I mean, there was an incident in the 90s in which the ADL um, was found to have been like spying on and like surveilling certain, um, I think, anti-Zionist organizations. Yikes. Yeah. And then, you know, under Abe Foxman, especially in the 2000s, there was a big incident where Foxman basically opposed the creation of a mosque near Ground Zero in New York City, um, because he said, you know, it could potentially be insensitive to victims of nine eleven or something.
2: We basically said um, that we believe that In this place of of, of tragedy and pain and anguish, maybe the best thing would be is if people would step back and consider that if you want to heal, the best way to heal is not to do it in your face. Uh, And if the people who you reach out to, those who had suffered the most, say, please don't do it in our cemetery, uh, not to do it.
0: And so for the head of a supposed anti-hate organization to basically come out and support these kind of Islamophobic ideas that it was a problem to have a mosque near ground zero, that was, you know, a pretty big uh, stance that he took that I think really also contributed to damaging um, the ADL's relationship with Muslim communities.
1: Yeah, it almost like it puts the stamp of like, this is the anti-hate position but at the same time, it's like preventing people from just having a place to worship.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, today, the ADL basically accuses um, the Council on American Islamic Relations, which is like major U.S. Muslim rights and advocacy organization. The ADL basically defines them as a hate group, as an anti-Semitic hate group because of their anti-Zionist position and support for Palestine. And so the ADL is basically like prevented itself from allying with this major American Muslim group um, because of this position.
1: To be fair, the Anti-Defamation League calls CARE an extremist group, not a hate group. But still, this is not a term of endearment. In 2015, the ADL's current top executive, Jonathan Greenblatt, took over. He was fresh off his role as an Obama appointee, and his leadership seemed like an opportunity for the ADL to embrace more progressive and liberal ideas. But that's not what happened. In May of 2022, Greenblatt even gave this speech, where he laid out the ADL's approach to Zionism moving forward.
0: I remember I watched him give this speech virtually, um, and he basically announced that the ADL considered anti-Zionism to equal anti-Semitism.
2: Anti-Zionism is an ideology rooted in rage. It is predicated on one concept, the negation of another people, a notion as alien to our modern discourse, as white supremacy.
1: When you heard that, when you were listening live, how did you react?
0: Um, Okay, well, I knew it was coming. (laughs) I (laughs) I had been kind of tipped off, which is why I was listening to this speech. So I I wasn't completely surprised. At the same time, I was like, wow, this is a really (laughs) pretty intense position for them to take. And I think, you know, one thing I wanted to know was like, why? Because previously they had had stuff on their website that was like, Anti-Zionism is often anti-Semitism, but sometimes it's not. So they had been like a little bit more nuanced. And so suddenly he's just really taking this blanket position.
1: To play devil's advocate, why isn't defending Israel an important mission for the Anti-Defamation League? Israel is where a huge number of Jews live. Like, of course, you would want to protect the people there if part of what you're doing is trying to protect Jews.
0: I mean, I think there's two things here. I think one, there's a real question about whether defending the policy of the Israeli state at all costs is actually the way to best protect the Jews who live there and the Jews who live in the U.S. And, you know, I think a lot of times what we've seen is actually when Israel is more strident in its human rights abuses and when it's kind of... Had this um occupation um for so many decades that actually creates a lot more animosity um and I think creates a much more dangerous environment for for the Jews who live in Israel and so I would really question the assumption that just automatically supporting everything the Israeli government does is a real way to achieve kind of the safety of the Jews who live there and then I think the second part to that is you know if your advocacy to you know achieve the safety of Jews around the world including in Israel is basically leading you to support a status quo in which, you know, Palestinians um, in the West Bank and Gaza are, you know, deprived of any kind of um, democratic rights or, you know, rights of citizenship. Are you really a civil liberties and civil rights organization?
1: After the break, Waimari says October 7th has made the ADL's approach even more confusing. After October 7th, there was this really stark example of how the Anti-Defamation League's conflation of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism could cause strategic problems for the organization. And it involved Elon Musk. I'm wondering if we can tell that story. It's a little bit complicated, but I think it's important because it's really revealing. Like, we should just start by just explaining what the ADL's relationship with Musk has been before October 7th. It's been complicated, right?
0: Yes. So the ADL has long had kind of a fraught relationship with Musk. And it basically started when Musk like took over Twitter, right, in like the fall of twenty twenty two. And it's interesting, you know, there's this moment when Musk is is coming on and he's basically said that, you know, part of the reason that he's um wanted to buy Twitter and to take it over was to sort of um end what he saw as like kind of censorship of certain voices on the platform.
2: You know, free speech is meaningless unless you allow people uh, you don't like to say things you don't like. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. Um, and if at the point at which you lose uh, free speech, uh, it doesn't come back.
1: He wanted Twitter to be like a town square, but <laughs> with no rules at all, no moderation.
0: With no rules, no moderation. That's pretty directly counter to the ADL's own work in the online sphere, which is often about like increasing moderation, increasing um, you know challenges to anti-Semitic and you know, overly hateful content and trying to get that stuff off the platform. And at that time, Jonathan Greenblatt did like a TV appearance, I believe, in an interview about Elon Musk. Um, and instead of like raising some of these concerns about what Musk might do, he actually because kind of praised about him. About
2: before, Elon Musk is an amazing entrepreneur, an extraordinary innovator He's the Henry Ford of our time.
1: A notorious anti-Semite. <laughs>
0: The fact that the CEO of um, the Anti-Defamation League is positively comparing someone to Henry Ford is just, you know, was a really pretty embarrassing moment for him on a broader scale. And, you know, eventually he did kind of walk it back and apologize. But the staffers at the ADL were like really upset at the time because they felt like that undermined their work.
1: Well, it's also happening at the same time that like the ADL is like changing where it advertises and saying like, oh, we won't advertise on Twitter. Right. So So it's like all these contradictory messages flying back and forth.
0: Right. Greenblatt had praised, you know, has kind of given this praise, but pretty soon after the ADL starts putting out reports that, you know, Musk's tenure is already increasing hate and harassment on the platform.
1: Is there a keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of argument
0: here to make? Yeah, I mean, I do think the ADL does kind of have this approach and especially under Greenblatt that's this like they feel very worried about alienating anyone who has too much power because they want to be able to lobby them and they want to be able to like be called on to advise them. And so I think that their, their approach is just not, they don't like to be so antagonistic, but you know, they did do certain things. So they, they were part of a coalition of other like civil rights groups that basically I think was trying to push advertisers to stop advertising on Twitter um, until you know, Musk would improve some of the content moderation and they kind of stopped some of their own advertising, um, but they didn't stick with it for that long. Like they, then the ADL went back to advertising on Twitter because um, they say that like, oh, it's important for us to put our positive anti-hate messaging in this space. Um, but the result is that it's been kind of contradictory because they'll be like, people shouldn't advertise on Twitter, but then they'll do their they'll go back to running their own advertising.
1: So you can see how strange the dynamic is here, Right. You've got Elon Musk boosting anti-Semitism, and the group most identified with fighting anti-Semitism publicly cozying up to him. Then October seventh happened. Musk looked on as misinformation about the war swirled around his website. But Musk also said his team would be tightly policing pro-Palestinian speech, even suspending people who used the phrase "from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free," and for that. Jonathan Greenblatt, was full of praise. He tweeted about Musk's leadership. Mari says many of the ADL's staff were horrified by that.
0: I think people were pretty distraught and pretty concerned. Um, You know, people who work in the Center for Technology and Society in the ADL, um, you know, the big part of the work of that department is trying to, like, fight online harassment and hate and get social media organizations to change their policies to better, like, you know, root that out. And Musk had caused them a lot of trouble and they were really concerned about the policies that he was pursuing at Twitter because they believed those policies were encouraging that hate and harassment. And so they so then to see their own CEO come out and basically praise him, I think was very tough, you know, and very frustrating for those people.
1: Is there an argument to be made that if you actually want someone like Elon Musk or Twitter to change what they're doing? you have to be nice to them. Otherwise, they won't listen to you. Like, is there an argument for what Jonathan Greenblatt is doing?
0: Well, I mean, yeah, obviously, like there's different theories of political change. And I do think it's true that the ADL has definitely, you know, they're not, I would not call them like a really radical or really like intense um, agitational organization. Again, their strategy really is to try to kind of, I think, develop more of these relationships and be able to stay in the room with people in power and influence them. Um, But it is, I think important to consider that it doesn't really seem like they're applying that across the board. So when it comes to like Elon Musk or someone in that position, it's, you know, he's willing to say, oh, well, sometimes we have to, you know, support him and, you know, say nice things, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to like college students who are you know, adopting anti-Zionist politics, some of them Palestinian, some of them Jewish leftists, he basically is taking this really harsh stance against them.
1: Well, those people aren't like leading companies <laughs> or billionaires. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's just a different group of people.
0: Right. But it does. I mean, I think the impression that it gives off is that John the Greenblatt is actually more willing to kind of coddle and speak nicely to the powerful people, but that when people actually have much less power, he's willing to totally like come down harshly on them and throw the book. And so that I think that sort of gives a certain impression of how the ADL um, responds to people who have power and don't have power.
1: Yeah. You know, as I've been talking, I keep thinking about the fact that one of the most important things the ADL does is keep track of incidents of anti-Semitism around the country. Given what you've said about how the organization is often thinking about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism as being tied together, what does that mean for the data they're collecting and the data that people like us, like journalists, are using?
0: Yeah, I think this is something I've reported on a lot. It's a big issue because it's not always clear when in the ADL's data they are um, reporting incidents that, you know, I think a broad consensus of people would agree are anti-Semitic. So, you know, maybe a swastika showing up somewhere, um, you know, someone punching someone and calling them a dirty Jew, like, you know, a bomb threat to a synagogue, obviously very clear incidents of anti-Semitism that do happen and that the ADL does track. Um, But then there will be other examples of things that the ADL at times maybe has tracked as anti-Semitism that I think there would be real debate about. So like, you know, a sign at a protest that says Zionism is racism. Hmm. And it's it's very challenging because it basically means like that this data, which does track important incidents of anti-Semitism, could potentially be less reliable because it can include these other incidents that, you know, I think are much more debatable in our anti-Zionist political expression.
1: If the ADL did change its approach to Israel... Do you think it would have a wider impact on how our country, the United States, talks about something like the conflict in Gaza? Like, could they lead a different kind of discussion if they wanted to?
0: I do think that because the ADL is so respected as this singular voice on anti-Semitism and as the experts, I do think if they came out and said, actually, this isn't what anti-Semitism is, actually caring about human rights and liberation for Palestinians is not anti-Semitism, I think that would could have a pretty big effect on the discourse. Mainstream sources and media conversations and certain politicians might feel like there was more of a window to kind of talk about those things in a different way. Absolutely.
1: Mari, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Mari Cohen is an associate editor at Jewish Currents. We reached out to the Anti-Defamation League about this story, but we did not hear back before deadline. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. Step into the world
2: of power, loyalty,